If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Today, we have a special guest. Not only are we going to dive deep into different realms, but uh, maybe we'll talk about music too. We'll see. (laughs) I want to introduce uh, Jahan. Uh, Kamsasada, did I pronounce that correctly? I probably butchered it. You got it. No, that's it. <laughs> Thanks for joining, man. I appreciate it. It's, it's an honor to be with you, Len. Thank you. So I, wa- I want to dive deep in your story. And you kind of, I, I dove into some of your content. Uh, but I want to I sort of kind of set the stage from uh, where you grew up and uh, sort of your childhood. And uh, maybe we can start with that first. Yeah. Uh, born in Los Angeles, um, but when I was four years old, moved to Tucson, Arizona. Uh, my dad immigrated from Iran, my mom from Mexico. Uh, Tucson was a little bit closer to Mexico. Childhood was rough. Um, There's a lot of scarcity, you know, and they were illegal immigrants for a while. And uh, kind of volatile household and school was kind of painful. I did get placed in a gifted program growing up, which was a good positive. But by the time I was 15, I was suicidal, depressed, and an atheist. Then it was a mushroom journey at a tool show that really kind of changed and pivoted my life and had this experience of a deep connection with God that I thought was impossible, that we live in a spiritual reality. Well, that I, don't mean, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to interrupt uh, because I definitely want to dive into that. Yeah. But I, I want to. I want to pause on the childhood journey. So because you, you stay gl- with the childhood, because, yeah, because you glossed over some really important things that I think pe- people need to really understand. Yeah. So 
First of all, I'm an immigrant too. My, I was born in Lithuania. My parents immigrated when I was a kid. So I understand. I, I came when I was six, seven years old. So I understand. And I grew up in Philadelphia. I didn't know the language. And uh, I understand what it's like to you know, be bullied and all those other things because you are a foreigner first. Second of all, you had a very diverse background. And in, in, in Arizona, yeah, I mean, Mexican, yes, but Iran? I mean, how how was just growing up in that environment? How did that affect you? It's painful, you know. So, in a personal way, I had experience even going into the kindergarten not knowing how to connect. And as I'm through elementary, there was a sense that I was different and kind of isolated and made fun of a lot. That continued to junior high and high school, and throughout all the time, I just took it personal. Something about me. And it wasn't until I got into my early 30s and really reflected that the role race plays unconsciously and, and different kind of uh, from subtle stuff from the way I speak. You know, parents spoke broken English, their dialects and, and accents were different, uh, body compositions, the names, subtle things that I just kind of just took for granted made a huge difference where, you know, especially kids, they tend to bond with people that are like them. You know, and so there was a lot of reasons looking back and my parents you know, inherited so much came with a sense of not belonging, even illegal, you're not supposed to be here. And that sense of socially not belonging was there at the very beginning. And, you know, it wasn't uh, until like my late 20s, early 30s of really doing deep work around that. So childhood was very painful in, uh, in most facets of life. So, and then you also talked about, and I don't, I don't know this, but like an immigrant household, from personal experience some friends of mine, there are certain... Uh, cultural conditions on how to raise a child. First of all, did you have any siblings? Uh, you had a sister, three and a half years younger, Zoraida. She's amazing and definitely different cultural components. Um, the one that's uh, most noticeable, um, I, in those cultures, it's okay to hit children. And so I was hit a lot, like every day. And definitely doing deep psychedelic work in the early 30s. The role it plays, it creates a tremendous amount of shame when somebody lets out anger and judgment and it can rage on your system physically, it creates shame. And then you go back to the school, you get more shame than back and forth. That's why it kind of broke down that sense of self and moved towards depression. Um, you know, it's, you know, I love my parents, we're really close, uh, but, you know, it's still coming from in the Middle East, a strong patriarchal tradition. Yeah. You know, and so in their sense, they have to hold that, their pride is on the line. Um, and my mom, even though they weren't religious from a Catholic tradition, so there's a lot of strictness and judgment. And then on top of that, a merging of these two in the house, but we're in a different culture, you know, in the U.S. So it was a lot of learning to navigate a lot of unknowns and differences. Can we unpack the, the shame thing? Because I, I share that with you. So I've, uh, I was, you know, hit and all that other stuff. Uh, I, I, people would refer to it as, abuse these days but uh you know back in the day that's the way you were raised and it was uh, it was uh it was a sense of i guess there was a fear and there was lack of trust and there was you're always you're always on guard because you know what's going to happen you know what's going to trigger it right so it's not there's not this consistent behavior of well i know if i do this i'm going to get hit but it wasn't like that kind of thing so i i i got the stress part of it and going through my own therapeutic journeys and all that stuff. But I, I'm not sure if I, 
ever thought about the shame elements? Maybe you can kind of unpack that a little bit for me. And then, yeah, and I like where you're first going to the normalization of it, because for a lot of human history, a lot of prior generations, it was the norm. And so it's for a lot of cultures. And I never questioned it. My parents loved me. Right. Um, so that was there in the midst of a lot of trauma that they were playing out and they were doing what their parents did. You know, so, so that was, it was very unconscious in that regard. And I grew up with a tremendous amount of shame. I thought it was made fun of. I was way overweight because we didn't know much of 240 pounds by the time I was 15 and four on the Enneagram. So there's a lot of shame that is a primary emotion in my system that I really had to work through a lot in early 30s in therapy. But I did uh, 10 ayahuasca journeys this last year in the ceremony. And a lot of it was moving through shame. At first, I was moving through getting hit as a child and the way it affects your body. Then this voice came up and like, now see the roots of your shame. And I was able to draw that reflection. So if somebody yells at you, your parent judges you, yells at you, you feel shame, right? Like that's what you're doing. When you yell at a dog, it's supposed to feel shame. You did something wrong, you're bad. But now you bring on this force and it pushes that into the body. I studied somatic psychotherapy for a couple of years and the idea is that trauma and feelings are rooted in the body. Now you're pushing that emotion into the body and into the identity of who and what you think you are. And so you're feeling that at home, it breaks your self-esteem and then you go into a social network, like a, a classroom setting, and you're still feeling the residue of that shame. So it affects most huge parts of your life and your sense of self and self-worth. Such an interesting way to look at it. Um, do you feel that your your sense of your body image and, and being overweight and all that stuff was was being overweight was that a defense mechanism for like uh i'm getting some like it's making me feel good to eat and now i'm starting to feel good about myself for a second not about myself but i'm just feeling good because i'm getting some of that and now you're perpetuating that because you look in the mirror and then you feel bad about yourself but even you know eating certain things are making you feel good for a second, like that, that shot of heroin. No, totally. And I noticed it at a very young age of first four or five and then moving forward where when I felt anxiety, I ate. Right. So it was definitely a coping mechanism that was there. And again, immigrant family, they didn't, were educated. We, we didn't know much about nutrition. So you're buying cheap food filled with sugar. So that made it really easy. Um, and from a psychological lens, it does make sense that it's a defense in bringing padding to your body. You're getting physically hit. It keeps people away. You're feeling shame. So you want people to stay away. But what I've seen so much of my clients, um, they come for depression, you know, which is working with self-esteem and a sense of isolation. And so when you're feeling a lot of shame, you're also feeling isolated. So for years, even after I lost weight, I'd look in the mirror all the time and just feel shame. Because that, that image and relationship, my body for the first so many years formed a certain way. And I, I don't even think it's completely healed, you know, because yeah. it was so foundational in the way I developed and evolved. It, 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 I, I want to dive into it a little bit more, if you don't mind. I'm just, Anywhere you I'm, want. Yeah, yeah, I'm just curious because it, especially with your journey, uh, when, when, when you heard, when she told you shame, like, I, I'm just trying to, because... The way that I reacted to, you know, I'll, I'll call it abuse or whatever you, you want to call it. The way I reacted to it was with anger and violence. So mm -hmm. I didn't have, I'm not sure shame. I, this is the first time I'm kind of trying to process myself uh, as we're having this conversation. But for me, it was a triggering thing where 
I didn't, I'm not sure I felt like insecure. I mean, everybody as a teenager feels insecure and I was made, made fun of too, but I try to be more of uh, the person that doesn't show that and really quick trigger of, mm-hmm. you know, being violent or yelling or, or, you know, getting into fights and all that stuff. And what I, that perpetuated this approval from my dad because he liked the fact that mm. I was being physical outside and it was like, oh, so I'm like, wait, well, I'm getting some love. That means I should keep on doing that. And it was just this pattern of constantly being in a heightened state of stress because every time you're in an altercation, you're stressed. So that cortisol is pumping and pumping. I, I'm just, I, I'm sure that affected me in so many different ways that I, I, I'm still like, I, I went through a bunch of therapy too. Uh, and I have a great relation with my parents. I speak to my dad every single day now. So we're, we're great. Uh, we're great. But, but I decided I'm going to, my, I'm not going to raise my daughter the same way. I had a, my dad might listen to this, but so he already knows. Same. My dad so, might listen to it too. <laughs> so I told him uh, one time he was complimenting me on, you know, the, the kind of father that they have my daughter. And, uh, I don't know what possessed me to say this, but I'm like, well, that's because I, I try to do the opposite of what you were doing with me. <laughs> he didn't like that at all, but it's true. It's exactly what I, what I did. I was like, that's not the way I never put my hand on my daughter. You know, there was some yelling here and there, but uh, so I, I'm just curious of the journey. So as a kid, you're going through this, you have this shame, you have uh weight. First of all, what did you want to be when you were, when you were a kid? Like, was did you have a, a passion for what you're what you're doing now? What what was or music or what, what was that thing that really disconnected you and, and connected you to your sense of self as a kid? You know, there wasn't much self-esteem. As I mentioned, I got placed in the gifted program, so at least helped me believe I was intelligent, right? And so that's some level of self-esteem. And then early on, I thought I would go probably into science. I liked learning. Um, and then as a, there's coming around, but there's that mushroom journey at 18. And the one later where I saw, it felt like 40,000 years ago, I was serving mushroom tea to people in a cave, right? And there was this felt sense that I would be doing like that again in my mid thirties. My life, then, I, then when I started college, I went into science, took more mushrooms. It said to study mysticism. I'm like, that's not even a major <laughs> long way back. You know, somehow it ended up serving mushrooms. But with the part you stood around, the shame to sit with that for a minute, I, I got in fights almost every day. In elementary uh-huh. school, got in trouble so much. Um, but with my parents, it wasn't until my 15th when it stopped when I was also got like six foot tall where energetically in strength, I could stand up for myself and like, you know, then it stopped. But before that, I think it was part of the cultural piece where you always have high level respect from your parents. You know, and so I wouldn't necessarily yell back. I wouldn't necessarily fight back. It was a part of the social structure, you know, and so it kind of just left me feeling beat down. Yeah. Man, I still have that. But, but, my my ahead, dad still, my still. If I raise my voice, my dad or something like yeah. that, oh, he he just yeah, he can't no. It's the elders. Totally. What do you mean? Totally. And he'll hang up on me in two seconds. There. He won't take it. Yeah, totally. No, it's that the respect needs to be, I think it needs to be there. It's important, but we need boundaries and anger. You shared a sense to be a protective response. Like somebody crosses your boundaries, you know, or something, you see, even see somebody cross the boundaries of somebody else. You feel angry for them to protect them. And you know? so, so it's, it's, there's a sense of protecting your sense of self and your body. Such, such a great way of putting it. L- let me, let me 
uh, fast forward school, you, you're now you're working on your physical health and you've uh, grown and uh, you're developing a little bit of, uh, you know, that, that uh, sense of self, but you, then you had your mushroom journey. How did that, how did that come about your first uh, journey? Because I've been so depressed and suicidal, it made me kind of really existential. Like, what's the point of everything? Why are we alive? What am I going to do? And that's been like seven months just walking. Like after I come from school, I'd walk six, seven hours a day trying to figure out, thinking of big stuff, you know, time, space, God, ego. And on this particular day, you know, high school just finished. I was going to go see Tool for the first time, my favorite band. Somebody I just met that day gave me a handful of mushrooms. I'm like, this is going to be great. It was still the most important experience of my life. Like 20 years later, I still think about it almost every day. And I had this experience first of dissolving and I'm about to die. And I kind of like, I was too curious and I let it happen. And there was a sense of union with the voice and I felt connected to everything in the cosmos. And it felt 110% real, like the most real thing I ever experienced. And it shifted everything, you know? So then, as I mentioned, came to school first as a neuroscience major to study between consciousness and matter then physics for three and a half years and then another mushroom journey said physics isn't what you're wanting no study mysticism so like more of a direct experience of the divine so then it came to the bay area i got the first the, the masters in consciousness and the doctors in philosophy cosmology consciousness and i thought i was gonna be a professor for like 15 years and then another psychedelic journey kind of told me to take several more years of training to become a psychedelic guide which kind of brings us a little bit closer to the present moment. So I've been doing that work for about five years. So as you're going, w- w- you went to school in the Bay Area? You said like uh, graduate school? Uh, okay. Yeah, so then- first... Yeah, um, no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, it's first JFK, got the Master's in Consciousness and Transformative Studies and then Calif- went to the California Institute of Integral Studies to get the doctors in Philosophy, Cosmology, Consciousness amazing program and then i realized the psychedelics were the most transformative experiences in my life i did years of therapy meditation yoga so many transforming workshops end of the day nothing came close to the change i saw with psychedelics so i kind of went all in put all my eggs in that basket yeah. and then you decided that you're going to be a a psychedelic guide uh and also as you know a a all the training that you had from everything else you brought into that what does that entail? Psychedelics, uh, mushrooms at that time, I don't, I don't know what the legalities are, but all that stuff. So, and by the way, I've, I've done a bunch of, uh, you know, psychedelic journeys and uh, not ayahuasca, but DMT and uh, done plenty of mushrooms and all that stuff. So uh, I, I can relate to the experience. I, I, and people talk about like bad trips and all that stuff. I kind of don't, I, I try not to put a label on it I think every single one of these journeys is there's something in there for you. It can be extremely intense, but there's a reason why kind of thing. So anyway, I went off from a tangent about myself, uh, but I wanted to go back to you and, and just, if you can describe when you made that decision, what is, what is the actual business? Like what, what do you do when you made that decision that you're going to be this, this guide with the psychedelics for people? You know, it was strangely effortless, you know, I, before I made that decision on 23, I took some mushrooms and went around the University of Arizona campus in Tucson and, you know, trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I was like, maybe I'll be a professor. This way I get to keep learning. Mushrooms had told me that love 
is the most important thing in the universe. Miles after that is learning. Everything else is so insignificant. Don't worry about it. And so I'm like, I'll keep in the state of learning and teaching. And so I went on the track to be a professor for like 15 years until I got to the doctorate program and was disillusioned with academia. And honestly, they barely pay. And after so many years of work, there's no real security. Um, but as I was sitting there in that, people started asking me many years ago to start holding space for them and their psychedelic journeys. I was just taking so many classes on psychedelics. Again, I've been doing so much self-work and people really trusted me. So people just started coming to me. And then I came across a training where they had been training guides underground for over 30 years, You know, trained over 500 guides, and they were connected to the Mazatec mushroom tradition in Mexico, where, where we first learned about mushrooms with Maria Sabina. And so it was a multi-year training. And while I was doing that, I did a lot of other trainings at the same time. And I wrote my dissertation on psychedelics. It just became a book, came out this last year called The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness, Evolution of the Planet. And, uh, you know, really kind of saw that for me, they're the greatest hope we have in humanity. You know, they saved my life. I've seen them save so many people's. But psychedelics pretty much grow in every ecosystem around the world. You know, the mm. heart of this dissertation was that we evolved because eating psilocybin mushrooms is, is primates. And that I feel like our species is out of equilibrium because we haven't eaten these compounds that pretty much grow everywhere. So I felt like the best thing I could do during this life um, was to help people heal, you know, using these medicines. How, how, do, how can mushrooms help people heal? Like, yeah, what's that's the a great question. No, there's, there's so many layers. Um, Stanislav Grof, who was one of the first psychedelic researchers starting the 1940s, uh, held, held space for over 50,000 people at this point. And he says psychedelics catalyze what he calls holotropic states of consciousness, states that self-organize organically into wholeness. And so whatever's repressed um, comes up to the surface to be integrated. When we look at the neuroscience, um, it quiets what's called the default mode network, the ego part of the brain. And in quieting that voice, the whole brain hyperconnects and creates this deep state of neuroplasticity and hyperconnection and stimulates what's known as neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. The brain actually physically begins to evolve and grow. We have found an 80% success rate for treatment-resistant depression, the highest. So people that nothing, no other medications have worked for, no other therapy. 80% success rate for end-of-life anxiety, people that have a terminal illness and they're petrified of death, they heal. 80% for nicotine addiction and alcohol, the highest we have. And 65% of people in the right setting, set and setting, including dose, have a mystical experience. So these are unparalleled numbers in any area of therapy or, or area of healing or even spirituality. So if that takes sometimes years of meditation, you get to tap into six or seven hours. So it was just as this was the most important thing in my life. I wanted to create a space where I could personally see that happen for others. It's like seeing a butterfly come out of its cocoon. For the first time, you know, I've seen people's lives change in the course of hours, you know, decades. It's possible. It's not always a guarantee where decades of depression shift in like three or four hours. Yeah. So uh, incredible because, you know, right now the culture is uh, shifting into this, uh, you know, we, we went from cannabis and legalizing cannabis and the endocannabinoid system, learning about that. Uh, you know, this is the, the new frontier. We see a tremendous amount of financial investment in the space, even, you know, I guess way more than what cannabis was at the time. Maybe it's because it's a single molecule. It's easier to understand uh, than, you know, having the effects of many uh, uh, cannabinoids in, in the plant. But 
in, in terms of um, in terms of a, a business, like it, and and let, let me back up and ask the first question I wanted to ask uh, the the cultural uh, connection to microdosing, right? So everybody's talking about microdosing, and I want to I want to go into what you do and then how important dosing is and how important dosing is for individuals specifically. So first of all, uh, what are your thoughts about microdosing psilocybin and how should people uh, consume it? You know, does that even make sense to do that? Totally. No, I think it's a great way. It's a great starting path. You know, uh, I led a free online group with the SF Psychedelic Society for a year called Developing a Relationship with Sacred Mushrooms. And part of the context of these indigenous traditions that have been using psychedelics for millennia is they see these as master plant teachers, as actual beings that you're in communion with. And so from their point of view, you have a relationship. And in this sense, microdosing is a great way to begin a relationship. Most people, because what we found, so I'll look at mushrooms, pretty safe, no biotoxicity, you know, theoretically you could take a thousand doses. Um, at higher doses, there is a fear of emotional trauma. If you're not right set and setting, you need a great container. Um, but overall, pretty much you're going to likely be safe. And with the microdose, there's almost no real risk. So there's been extensive underground surveys by James Fadiman that really started this movement. And 90% of people have a deep increase when it comes to depression, mindfulness, more productivity, and so on. About 10% of people have an increase of anxiety. So worst case situation with a microdose, which is generally 0.1 grams of a psilocybin mushroom, you might feel anxious for three or four hours. Not a bad, you know, loss or something that could potentially be very, very helpful mm-hmm. as you could see a neurotropic or as a daily supplement that you can use four or five times a day. And most people don't take bigger psychedelics or even go to therapy for it or I, out of fear. It's just fear of the unknown really holds us back. And maybe the biggest thing we're facing with psychedelics is just the stigma. It takes so long to undo the stigma that the government had created for so long. And But the science is really moving with that. And so this is a way for people to like, you know, step their toe into the water, you know, before jumping in. They're like, hey, this is safe. You know, I've been microdosing for a month. I feel amazing. What's it like? Take a little bit of a higher dose. And and it is very different doing it with a therapist guide or a shaman, somebody that's holding the space, making sure you're safe, that's doing all the prep work to see what is it we're trying to heal with you. You know, it's, it, there's a difference of you trying to do therapy by yourself in contrast to like an expert therapist. They're going to lead you deeper, you know? So in a guided ceremony, you have somebody there for six hours helping you go deeper. And so much of our wounds that we mentioned are relational right? Shame is a relational wound and, or people feeling safe, you know, around others or finally being seen and empathizing. And so there are deep possibilities in that kind of container. So I think microdosing is amazing. You know, there aren't, if you're done correctly, I'd, I'd be, and I've been thinking about it for years, it's hard to find any negative side effect, then you might be uncomfortable for a few hours. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I want you to talk about the difference between having a guide, having a professional and doing it on your own, because I, you know, I can, I can talk about journeys as a kid and, and on for me, I know when I hit that dose that the, my separate myself from micro to macro, I start feeling cold. That's my first, that's my first indication. I, I don't, it can be hot out in the summer. I get cold and then I know, Oh shit. I'm in, I'm in, it's, I'm going to about to take off. So, uh, and the other thing is nowadays, because 
we're learning much more about uh, maybe it's from Paul Stamets being out there and and really you know wearing his mushroom hat and talking about it. Uh, the you know the and, and the documentary uh, that's on people are starting, especially you know we're in LA, so everybody's gonna you know, try whatever it is first. But I think people need to understand that different fruit has different concentration of psilocin and and one mushroom is not created the, the same as the next mushroom so like i remember consuming something called like albino penis envy which had so much so much more powerful even though i took the same amount than of a golden teacher as an example so maybe you can kind of and i, I really want to you to focus on how guided, how it's much different. I want people to have a really safe and therapeutic experience instead of, you know, popping a bunch of mushrooms and go, nothing wrong with it. I have nothing wrong with, you know, taking some mushrooms and doing your thing and going to hike or whatever you want to do. But it's not the, it's not a guided therapeutic journey with somebody like yourself that can actually take them through that process. Totally. Absolutely. You know, there's different containers there's the one-to-one container with a guide there's then there's like a group kind of ceremonial container that's more indigenous to traditional there's a recreational container you know at a festival concert then maybe just doing it by yourself the one i first and foremost do recommend is that with a guide um the downside just to go start with the shadow first is it could be costly and it's hard to find a guide Right. So you're talking to somebody that's done levels, years of training in some level of psychotherapy and medicine guide. Right. So even psychotherapy is just like somebody that has done a master's and do years of work just to get their license. Right. So it costs a lot of money. Um, and then somebody that's trained in psychedelics and has gone deep, they're harder to find. So most people can't afford even a good therapist. Right. Like that's the reality of our economic world today. Right. But if you can, that's amazing. It, a guide hopefully is somebody that's gone through the process many, many times. It can lead you. So you need to know how to guide you. Right. So hopefully they have a lot of journeys under the belts along with the training. One that's a little bit more economical, um, but still you have to be somewhat connected to find is some level of uh, a medicine circle. You know, it's more of a traditional approach where you're doing kind of in a group, you're, you're still doing it by yourself, but nobody's, it's not a one-to-one, you know? Um, but it, this isn't as helpful with people with high levels of trauma. You know, for many reasons, they need more attention if there's like a lot of PTSD there. And if the trauma comes up and is really explosive, it takes up all the attention in the group, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's great if you have a deep acute trauma to do the one-to-one work first before going in a group container and, and kind of that level of ceremony. Then, you know, I, I just came back from Burning Man. There's a lot of different psychedelic festivals where there's some infrastructure there to take care of people. Like at Burning Man, we have the Zendo where... It's a harm reduction place. If you're having a hard psychedelic experience, you go and somebody takes care of you. But the burn, for example, in a lot of different festivals and some concerts are situated where it's a safe place to try something like a psychedelics, but hopefully at a much smaller amount. You know, at a one-to-one with a therapist or guide, you can go pretty deep. You're laying down, they've got you. You know, with a group, you kind of bring it down because somebody has to take care of the whole group. Everybody can't just way blast off. With, uh, you know, the festival setting, you have to have enough wits of you to coordinate, to walk, to talk, to get to the bathroom. You know, nobody's there one-to-one taking care of you the whole time, much smaller dose. And for the self-exploration, my favorite philosopher, Terrence McKenna, really had this line that, you know, you need to take at least five dried grams of mushrooms, what they call the heroic dose, to really get to know them and to go in a room by yourself, silent in the darkness. And for some people, this works, you know, because it has. And I have had the experience and, and some others, if you keep doing this, there could be levels of trauma that come up because you're by yourself 
in a really altered state, you can buy into anything. So having gone through many egoic, you know, death, rebirths, sometimes you can really buy into it. You know, one I had is where I really thought I was dying, you know, and you're really altered and you're like, oh my God, I think I ate something that was poisonous. And I felt like my organs were shutting down and I couldn't breathe. And I was stuck in that state for like six hours. You know, looking back, you're just going through the ego death rebirth, but you're caught up in it. And there wasn't a guide there to be like, hey, you're fine. You're okay. Let go. And then staying stuck in that state of contraction caused the trauma for many years. The same way if you're at war and you might get hit by a bullet and you're like in this high intensity at level nine or 10 for six hours, that causes trauma. So I've seen that happen with people uh, that trip alone at high doses. It's not everybody, but if you do it enough and enough and enough, it could be hard. So those are some other ways um, I helped start, um, and it's done really well now. They're, they're doing well. This group, Silo Health, I worked with them um, during COVID to create a free online training to help people learn how to sit for each other. So that's another mm-hmm. model, too. If, if you can't afford this and you don't have a network, get a good friend, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody you trust. That's really important. And if you go to silohealth, P-S-I-L-O health.co, we created a free four-hour online video training, I think nine different modules that helps people learn how to sit for each other, you know, to at least give them some knowledge that, you know, you can sit for your uncle, your brother, your sister, so that communities and, you know, even minority communities don't have access to learn how to heal one another because it's, it's going to be hard for them to find a really good therapist. Yeah, I mean, such a good point. What if, what if you're consuming with somebody you're together on this journey and one of you has an intense journey where the other one is, you know, it's different for different people. Uh, now you're put in a position where you have to sort of look out for your person, even though you're on your own journey. Uh, would you recommend uh, one person kind of being a guide, like you were saying, uh, and having the other person go on the journey and not doing it together? You know, it so much comes in with our level of experience with that particular substance and how well we know each other and dose is huge in this. So don't go way too high that you lose your sense of grounding and self, especially if you're playing with somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, some of my most amazing times have been doing this with friends and with lovers. You know, we're like, we're sharing in this experience. Um, but it tends to be people that have already been doing it for a while, you know. And if something comes up, because it's very probable um, that somebody's trauma will come up. You're really opening the psyche. I wouldn't be surprised where you're in a situation where you have to hold somebody for two hours while they cry, yeah. you know, and it's something that you hopefully are able to move into. If you're completely dissolved in your own journey and the sudden they're crying, they may feel abandoned. You might get scared. It could, it could unravel not well. So I think people before taking any psychedelics do a good level of research, read a book or two. You know, like really go into this, take this seriously. They're, they're amazingly transformative, enriching in every way I know, really. Um, but it's like you're playing with like magic medicine that can cause a huge explosion and bring up a lot of trauma. That's, that's very real. Is there something that an individual should do to prep prior to going into a journey? Like, uh, uh, you know, for some certain medicines, ayahuasca, there's a, there's a, you know, eat clean this and that is there is there something that, of a guide prior to going into a psilocybin journey that you would suggest 
Totally. I mean, they were more from a therapeutic lens. What I've always worked with is two prep sessions. These are two 50 minute like Zoom sessions leading into the session. So it starts a few weeks out. You're building trust with the person. You know, there's antique forms of going through their personal history, their big traumas, medical stuff, medications, intentions of what we're trying to work on. And so you're really building up to this day. And it takes time to build trust with somebody, right? So you start a few weeks out, get to know them. And so many times the person's most emotionally vulnerable they've ever been. It really breaks down those psychic defenses and people get really raw and really real and, you know, young parts of them come up. And so hopefully you have trust with this person that's there with you. If they, you don't have trust, their defenses are still going to be there and then we can't move into the deep healing. Um, you know, more than setting an intention, because you never really know what's going to come up, is coming in an intentional, right? Come in with good rest. It's nice to eat clean. So much of the point of this is to create a good life. So, so come in already, you know, in that kind of mindset, um, sober if possible, you know. Um, most people come in anxious, you know, and the truth is because you're looking at this line, this barrier where you don't know what's to come up. And most people, response to the unknown and even the future is just anxiety and if you take something like mushrooms it's a wild card every time you know that's one reason it's so fascinating you can always keep growing with it you don't know what's going to come up you know so if you can come in in a state of surrender i tell my clients to come in almost as if they're going to the spa like come in try to be relaxed even when you go to night and dream it's like by letting go and surrendering this huge visionary realm comes up every night in your dreams we're looking for that same unconscious visionary realm to come up. And so try to come in as relaxed as possible and do what you need to do in your life to come in like that. You know, put everything on pause, get off work the, the following day to um, let people have a support system, you know, have days and time set up for integration again with the therapist. I like to come in and tell people, um, come in as if you're going to die. Like, what do you need to do to feel an integrity and clean? Are there conversations you need to have? You know, what kind of person do you need to be that you can kind of really surrender like it's going to happen when you die? Try to come in that way, kind of surrendered as possible to the day of the journey. Do you see if people are coming in with anxiety, does that trigger a more intense journey for them or more of a, you know, having an exacerbated anxious uh, experience uh, on, uh, on psychedelics? No, 90% of people come in with anxiety. I'm, there's some people that come in super excited. I'm always surprised. Um, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm still anxious. You know, the teachers I trained with for 30 years, they're like, still anxious because that's our animalistic response of like anything could come up and you're really letting go. Um, and, and so I start people off after they take it um, into a 25-minute meditation, right? So you slow your breath, feel your body, become calm. And I think 100% of the time, because I was sitting there like, I can't think of one response where it hasn't happened. After the meditation, the anxiety is gone. Hmm. Right? And so, so it's really, so you're let me, let me just understand. Sorry, space. Keep going. John, so, oh, I, I, so I'm clear. So you, you consume an, a dose, and then you do the meditation before you're actually, uh, before the, the mm. psilocybin kind of it's right yeah so i want them to be in a very mindful space i want them to get the most out of this and present and aware and meditation is amazing right and so when i got trained we did all these different indigenous rituals calling directions a whole bunch of stuff and what i found in a very practical sense 
is getting people to connect with themselves deep in the breath, slow down. Like the anxiety part of us is like running away from something. Let's just, just be here and with it. And as you do that, because you are safe, it, it goes away. So, you know, when they first come in, they need to feel safe. So we do like a 10, 15 minute check-in. We connect the medicine, 25 minute meditation. This way they're really present to the experience. Um, mm-hmm. And generally the, you know, what I've seen that initial anxiety is already dissolved by the end of those 25 minutes. Uh, safe source of medicine, because yeah. there's so many people that are like, <laughs> I go to parties, like I have a capsule of, uh, you know, mushroom capsule here. How, how do I know what's in it? Like, I, I'm always conscious of what I put in my body. So what do you, what is your recommendation for people in terms of getting a, a safe, good uh, source of medicine? Totally. So I'm a huge fan of all the psychedelics. And that being said, you know, I focused my you know, doctoral work and, and a lot of the other work on mushrooms for many reasons. And one is they're by far the most safe, you know, like if something's a powder, there's a possibility of it being laced, you know, or cut with something. Um, mushrooms are mushrooms and they don't cost them much really. There's no sense to make something even more in it. That would, that would higher the cost. Another reason is, you know, there's been a huge drive for people to do at their own home cultivation. The good friend Seth Warner has this uh, website called mycorisingfungi.com. Goes through, you know, there's an entire course how to grow your own. They'll sell you a kit. Right now, he has a, a grower's guide that's coming out that uh, has a forward by Dennis McKenna. It's people, it's the pre sales right now. You can find Amazon. And so there's so many sources where people can grow now in the privacy of their own house. You know, they can um, have spores shipped. And so that's one way is to grow your own. You have to sit there and learn how to do it. It takes about six weeks and you have to be very methodological, methodological be very intentional because if, mm-hmm. if something gets contaminated, you've ruined the whole thing. Um, as you've mentioned with some uh, strains like penis envy, it could be 50% stronger. Yeah. Right. So like one and a half strong. So that's, there's a variation. Um, but what's also more likely is sometimes it could be also really weak. You know, they seem to lose potency after six months to a year, start to decrease. And so how fresh are they? Um, Overall, though, because they're organic and because you can see what they look like, they tend to be safe. You know, worst case situation, they're not going to work and you're going through disappointment, you know. And if they're penis envy, they'll probably tell you because they kind of cost more and like they're stronger. And people are like flaunting that this is penis envy. Yeah, I mean, you can <laughs> see that they have, they have a lot of purple bigger. on them. So, yeah, and they're yeah. bigger. Uh, so, for sure. Um in, in you talked about, and we're, we're talking about you know, uh, psilocybin and, uh, and psilocybin, but you said other, you know, psychedelic substances as well. Do you, uh, do you see like mushrooms as a, like an opener to other substances? Like I've been mushrooms. Okay. I got to a certain place. Now I think uh, I'm going to do DMT or I'm going to go to ayahuasca. Is that, is that a natural progression or? Or not necessarily? You know, because we are largely working with the stigma of society and, you know, just bringing cannabis, cannabis and how it's been, you know, even stigmatized as a gateway drug is just one, one, thank God it's the gateway drug, right? Thank God that's what's there as a buffer to everything else. It's pretty harmless. You, it's like, and you might be anxious and paranoid for a bit. You're fine. 
if that wasn't there, what would be next? You know, like travels around me, like cocaine, meth, you know, mushrooms, you have to grow that could be harder to come by. And uh, again, it's, I'd rather it be cannabis and LSD, which lasts 12 hours. You know? So we're working with the stigma. And there's a lot of stuff around people think like, well, something's organic or something's not. Mm. Um, and that does a big difference. When it comes to LSD, it's derived from a fungi. You know, it's just a pretty safe compound. You can take a thousand doses, but it lasts 12 hours. So once people overcome fear, they become more open, right? And you come up with new experiences. Uh, something they found in personality development and the studies of psilocybin is the part known as personality actually opens up. So then you become open to new ideas, new cultures, more creativity, right? New experiences. Personal personally i think a nice place to start even though it would take for a while and it's illegal is mdma you know mdma has some downsides it is more toxic you know theoretically if you take 10 to 20 doses you, you may die i think the ld50 is like 20 doses um but if you take a good dose it's completely okay and a reason i think it's a good place to start is 90 something percent of the time it produces a positive feeling and it's the best i've seen for ptsd where people feel so safe in their body and connected with others that it's okay to work on trauma. And whether it's a war, rape, you know, abuse, all of a sudden it's okay to hold these feelings. And at the beginning, it's nice for people to have some wins. Like, oh, things went well. Things went well. So MDMA is a good place to get used to altered states because it's largely positive. Mushrooms can pull you into fear, shame, pain, all those stuff. It's healing. It's just, it can be rough. And I think in the future of therapy, the combination is going to be amazing. MDMA first, 90 minutes and psilocybin. This way you can really surrender to the psilocybin experience. Is that what MAPS, uh, sorry, is that what MAPS is suggesting? Like, I know that, uh, you know, they, they got past their phase three uh, trial for MDMA, but is that is that a suggestion that they would say, you know, 90 minute MDMA journey, then uh, psilocybin journey? Is that, is that one of their protocols? Yeah. I think once both medicines become federally legal, and it looks like by the end of next year, after a while, it's going to seem obvious to marry these two in a specific protocol. But because we have to move really slow through legalization in society, you know, I think a lot of people right now at those levels, the federal levels, and working with law and health officials, they'd be scared of combining them. They're completely safe. You know, people go to parties combine them all the time. They're completely safe. But the idea of stacking things are already so scary for people, yeah. you know? So I think we have to get used to each one individually before this protocol kind of comes into place. And Rick Doblin, who started MAPS, again, there's a lot of strategy of how to make these legal. You know, he, he was aware, he's like, LSD is such a bad rep, we can't start with LSD. You know, the next two big ones to look at is either MDMA or psilocybin. You know, and they chose MDMA because of its help of PTSD, people that could deal. You can work with the veteran population. And the way they've done is like there's no political opposition. You know, we're working with the veterans, they're healing. So you have both Republicans and Democrats completely for this, no opposition. And same with mushrooms, they can be amazing in so many ways. But, you know, you start focusing on near end of life anxiety, people that are about to die. There's a lot of empathy that we have for that. And then depression, which is the largest growing epidemic worldwide when it comes to disabilities from the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. So you're focusing on the people that are sick and suffering. And then everybody else really getting on board. But they're amazing for creativity, spirituality, you know, learning, you know, optimization of performance. You know, as, as Tim Ferriss shares, every billionaire CEO I know in Silicon Valley uses psychedelics. So they really can help us on most edges. 
I think I'd imagine within five years, once both medicines are legal, somebody will be ballsy enough and it'll be safe enough that we can like, hey, my clinic can actually play with both to create a protocol. Do, do you think that that'll replace this uh, huge focus on ketamine uh, as, um, a, as a therapy? No, again, I love all the medicines. If I'm looking straight just as an effectiveness, psilocybin's much more effective, much more deeper, much more spiritual, goes a lot further. Uh, ketamine came in because we built a Schedule 4 substance, yeah. um, and then mushrooms was Schedule 1, like heroin, right? So it's, it was harder to move through the FDA. With ketamine, it could be prescribed immediately. It kind of felt like it came out of nowhere and moved through all the clinics. It is antidepressant. It does uh, connect parts of the brain, have to do with depression. The big shadow that a lot of us are becoming more and more aware is it's also pretty addictive, you know? And so it's beautiful. It's amazing. It feels good. And there's the impulse to keep, like, I've never heard in 20 years somebody becoming addicted to mushrooms. We're open to it. I just haven't heard of that happening. And I've focused on it for many years in my research. Ketamine, I know a lot of people, including myself, I've gone through addiction with ketamine. It's easy to fun to keep doing. It feels amazing. Um, not way a lot of downsides, other than it affects your sleep. And I, But I've met a few people where it has messed up a bit of their life because they really have gotten deep into an addiction cycle with that. Interesting. Yeah, I've seen, you know, I've seen some people get deep into ketamine uh, recreationally. Both cycles, like way back in rave culture in the beginning, uh, which you know I, I'm a little too old for, but I I did participate. I was more of a club guy in the New York clubs in the in the late '80s, uh, early '90s. But K holes, these uh, people would sit there and, and be in a K hole, and I and then for years it disappeared. And we can explain what that is to people too. For for years it disappeared, and then it's back. And it came back with a vengeance recreation before uh, the ketamine clinics opened up. And then, you know, also at, you know, festivals and, and, and parties. And then uh, now it's like popping up everywhere. I, I, I really, and I understand why. And, you know, you, you said it really well about Schedule 4 and about having FDA approval. You can prescribe it. You have a clinic for it. But I think that, you know, something grows from, from the earth and is natural and I would feel much, much safer and better about, you know, having something instead of something that's created a laboratory uh, for that, for sure. You know, as, as you would mentioned with cannabis and the endocannabinoid system, so much of my research was evolution of, of humanity and consciousness and the animal kingdom with mycelium and the fungi. And there's so much evidence to suggest it's been a deep part of our evolutionary history. Even you look at it and the way it works with the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor in our yeah. brain, that there's more affinity for psilocybin than serotonin itself. You know, it increases. Then we see archaeological evidence all over Africa, then parts of Europe, all over the Americas. The idea that even came the creation of art and language and so much of culture came from these psychedelic experiences. Like everything that we're finding in the scientific studies in the last 20 years would have been pretty much just as true for our ancestors, right? And they're finding these substances and you have the creation of rituals, of myths. It's, it's huge. And so our bodies evolve in relationship with it. And then you're mm -hmm. something like ketamine, it's, it's out of left field. You know, our body still doesn't know how to play with it in the right kind of way. It's, uh, it's just like introducing a highly addictive compound. Again, it's beautiful and it's amazing. And there's a shadow to it. No, uh, you, you said something that, that, that's so profound right now. I just want to, uh, you know, pause on that for a second because evolution. So 
thousands and thousands of years of evolution. And there's a lot of things that evolved out of ourselves. Like we don't need it anymore. Those receptors are gone. Uh, you know, there's organs in our body appendix. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we needed an appendix for, uh, before, but we don't anymore. So, but those receptors are still there. The endocannabinoid systems, the, the, the CB1, CB2, all these things are there. And you said serotonin, five, you're absolutely correct. And the, I, we didn't involve with ketamine is the long-winded point that I was trying to make. I don't know, I don't know any evolution in any historical uh, records that said, you know, I found this substance, ketamine, and uh, we've been involving with that ever since. So it makes total sense. So our body doesn't know how we haven't built in the right relationship with it. Um, and not bad. We are going to learn very quickly. As, as you mentioned, it's rarely that I go to a party um, and ketamine is not present. All right, let's let's talk about music a little bit with my other favorite subject. So uh, you mentioned your your tool uh, experience and, the, and journey. Do you remember the? And if you do, what is that? Uh, the very first concert you ever attended? Sure, it's it's, a, it's embarrassing, but it was my <laughs> first one, and it sparked a huge interest. Um, Age 12, 13, I got into ICP and St. Cloud Posse way before they were big. You know, I've always liked things that was dark and it had the rap and it had uh, like a whole theme to it. You know, way before they got into wrestling and blew up. And so my dad uh, took me from Tucson, Arizona, all the way to Phoenix, did like an hour and a half drive to take me to one of their concerts, age 13. So, I mean, we're talking about like mid-90s-ish. And... I mean, I went there and there's hundreds of people, the faces, the painted, you know, the women are topless and screaming. And in their concerts, they're dressed as clowns. They come out and they soak the crowd with about 200 different, you know, um, two liters of soda called Fago, right? And everybody's having a crazy time at the time. I was like, this is the most wild thing I've seen, you know, 13. I'm feeling so alive. This is amazing. I got kind of addicted to concerts, you know, I was, I've been to like one every week, starting at age 14, 15, still go a lot. I mentioned just got concert tickets today. It's a main kind of tour. I know about a thousand. And so as I moved through my teens of being an atheist and, and figuring out things with God, it became really clear that concerts became like my, my kind of church, my religious experience where I'm connected to everybody. I'm singing before I was mosh pits. Now I'm dancing. It's just like, it brings this deep, deep sense of euphoria and aliveness, you know? So I rarely miss a good concert when it comes around. Yeah. Well, we're definitely aligned with that for sure. Um, what, what was the last one that you went to? Oh my God. I mean, one, I just came back from Burning Man where I danced hard for a week straight. In, 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 in the mud. In the mud. In the mud. Yeah. So I was there for two weeks. I went there for build. So it was, oh. okay. so it was, it was, it was quite an experience. As much as, it was not like any other burn. And we in the mud every night, we still went dancing. Like you'd find some kind of remote in the shade. There'd be a DJ somewhere. In the midst of that, you're like, well, let's, let's keep this joyous feeling alive. Cool. Um, the next, for, the, for one year, you have to listen to five albums. Mm-hmm. You don't have to remember the name of the album. You can just say you know, Pink Floyd or something like that, just an example. Mm. But what would be those five albums? And I'm, I'm giving you some time to think as I'm talking. It's a moment in time. So when I do this, like I, uh, uh, you know, today 
maybe my two will be consistent tomorrow, but maybe three other ones, I'll have a different sort of, uh, you know, feeling that, that I'm connecting to. So what would be those five albums you would listen to for the next year? Yeah, that's good. I think I can do this. So uh, there's a win a album I've been listening to almost every day this whole year. I love them deeply. A newer band called Sleep Token. You know, they've been like a rise from the metal scene just to go a bit with them, like an amazing kind of presence to stage, wear masks, their identities unknown. The lead singer goes by the name Vessel. And he says he had this dream with his God sleeps and, you know, make, start making music. Um, deeply enchanting, blurs so many genres. Like there'll be like six or seven genres in a song from like, you know, metal to like classical to piano to RB&B. It's very sexy and very deep and very spiritual. Their new album, uh, Take Me Back to Eden, a masterpiece. And mm-hmm. so I've been going through the back catalog almost every day. Really fucking loving it. Um, the highlights, you know, in terms of a lifetime, Tool Lateralis has been my favorite album now for 20 years. So that would definitely be up there. Um, and then probably before that was what got me into them was Enema. You know, so both of those would be really high up there. I mean, the last year's album was... Um, Bullbeat that we'd listen to a lot. They're a Danish rock metal band. Also, not my common music, but dug them. It's like their influences are like Metallica and Johnny Cash. So it's a weird combination of music, but very creative. And their new um, album, Servants of the Mind, was I thought was really phenomenal. And then also like electronic. And my favorite DJ, her name is Closey. She. French lives in Colorado, amazing kind of shamanic, psychedelic, feminine, but gorgeous uh, in, in terms of her musical play. And I have tickets to see her coming to, in San Francisco twice. I'm going to both nights in the day air. So, so it'd be those five albums. Cool. Yeah. Got it. So what have psychedelics in general meant in your life? Everything. It's, it's hard to downplay. Uh, I am form a deep sense of identity of what I am, the way I see people, God, the planet, all of it. It ranges from healing to fun to just learning and insight. Um, I've made a career. I've, uh, there's nothing I found more fascinating. They're so peculiar, weird, magical. Um, again, I don't know if I'd be alive without them. You know, and it, it, I don't, I, I say that very intentionally. I'm really not sure that I, I think I might have committed suicide and they give me like a fresh breath inside and kind of brought me back to life. And of course, there's periods where I go through depression again, but they've been these kind of markers that can create massive shifts inside. And as much as I think I know the world, I know there's future psychedelic experiences that'll blow my mind and humble me out, you know, and, and I'll fall in love with all of reality all over again. Awesome. All right. So final bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Oh, that's an interesting one. So I got really into rock metal and kind of goth as a teen. And so when I got my own, I shared my room with my sister growing up. Again, we didn't have a whole lot of money, but come 13, 14, had my own room until like 18. And uh, I think my last concert actually was Cold Chamber and Mudvayne. They were they just came around after like twenty years, and you know, still getting into that scene. And so, I only wore black for a long time, and I had the desire to 
paint my room like really kind of dark blue, meshing with some like mostly dark blue, the walls and the ceiling, those light purple moving to dark purple with a big kind of gothic light coming out the window. And I had all these kind of like gothic light candles and then kind of more like metal stuff on the wall. You know, I was grateful my parents gave me the freedom to paint my room. And my mom was like, and I had a, a really nine shell, the big N-I-N, and then my name written in Farsi kind of painted in. And my mom said, it looks like a grave, you know, like, like just dark. And so after a few days, I came back and she had painted the whole room baby blue. <laughs> what did she what did she do with the nine inch nails uh, in, uh, i got to go back and repaint it we made a compromise it didn't have to be so dark and before this they even called the priest because it was just so different than they're used to so they took that before that winter they dried all these dark posters and took it down and a priest which was the dad's friend came to talk to me you know they were worried about me and i was like i'm <laughs> doing fine this music's amazing uh, so I've really been to aesthetics and, and now it's more visionary art and decoration, you know, in terms of like my home space. That's awesome, man. I, I have a, a quick Trent Reznor story. So I got invited. I used to be a music buyer or I used to work at Tower Records uh, way back in the day. For those of you that don't know Tower Records, it's a place that you used to go to a store and buy records. It was the biggest one in the U.S. and CDs, and cassettes, and all, all you kids, Google it. You'll, you'll see. There's a documentary on it. Uh, but I got invited to, uh, I think, Trent, uh, Nine Inch Nails was playing at Tower Theater in Philly. And I want to say Marilyn Manson was opening was eight years ago. So I got to uh, see that show. Great show. Uh, but I get to meet Trent later afterwards. And my interaction with him, and he signed my ticket, I think, my interaction with him was, he never once made eye contact. So he said something to me, but he was looking elsewhere, not once made eye contact with me. So I did meet him, but I don't know if he even he looked at me once. So it was a, it was a moment. <laughs> you know, I saw them last year. They went to Kier Berkeley and touring and they've been playing for like 30 something years. And before going in, I was like, what's been going on? I've been following them in so long. You know, went through some of their like documentaries, and it turns out even even when they were on the rise and got huge, he was really depressed and yeah. really addicted, and had it's strange he became this huge rock star, so many fans, but almost no self esteem. He's like, I hated myself, you know, and so I'm not surprised hating that. He's you're, he's playing more like thinking like he's a god. I love him so much. Yeah, but internally, I, I saw no him last, confidence. Yeah, and I saw him last year uh, as well. Uh, so it's great great show but yeah same thing i saw the documentary and uh, he was very very depressed so uh jaha where can people connect with you where can people uh you know participate in uh, your your uh, journeys your coaching all all the things uh, website social media etc totally you know my uh website is psychedelicevolution.org um, I have a newsletter there, sign up. I'll be running more and more retreats. For a long time, I was running them out in Jamaica. Um, my book, The Psilocybin Connection, is found on every platform, pretty much. So Amazon's pretty popular, Barnes and Nobles. Um, it's also on Audible. We got a great narrator. The publisher held auditions, got the guy I really liked, so people can listen to it if they prefer. Um, you can find me on Instagram. You know, Follow me on Facebook. My first name, last name, Johan Hamzazadeh, and... Yeah, I do a lot of different posts and updates around psychedelics. 
Cool, brother. I really appreciate it. This is great. I learned a lot. I hope uh, my audience did as well. And uh, Uh, I'll catch you uh, hopefully soon. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm looking forward to that. All right. Take care, man. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.